You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER me Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hi everyone, it's just me today, James again, and I'm talking today with my friend Billy, Billy Ford. Billy's a program officer for the Burma team at the United States Institute of Peace. Um, do you want to say hello, Billy? Hey James, uh, hey to your Hi. audience, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Was that a decent introduction, have I summed up? Yep, that sounds uh, right. What you do? Yep. Good. Didn't want to get that wrong. Right, so people will have heard Billy before um, or heard from Billy when we finished our last uh, series on Myanmar, where we spoke about the funding that the PDFs are using and how they're using a lot of unique and really innovative methods to uh, continue to, to support their revolution when they're not getting very much at all in the way of international support and certainly like nothing compared to countries like Ukraine. But what we wanted to talk a little bit about today was the SAC or the Hunters' attempts at kind of staging a sham election, which they've sort of backed off on. Um, can you explain a little bit about what they had proposed and, and then what they're maybe what they're doing now? Right. Yeah. Um, so the expectation was upon um, instigating the coup February first, twenty twenty one, that. Um, the state of emergency would end on um, February 1st, 2023, which was two days ago, mm-hmm. um, giving them six months after that uh, that period to kind of undertake uh, an election. And so the expectation was that before August 1st, 2023, there would be this sort of sham electoral process um, and the, uh, the Hunto would essentially structure the process in such a way that they their 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 political party, the USDP, would prevail, um, and that the uh, commander in chief, Min Online, um, who runs the SAC junta, 
would ascend as he had dreamed to become the president of the country and kind of rule in a military dictatorship model, but under kind of these auspices of civilian governance. So that was the expectation, but um, things have changed, as you kind of alluded to. Yeah, so they've they've said they're going to extend for another six months. Is that right? That's right. Um, so they said they would extend for another six months until August 1st. Um, but then this morning, they also announced a new political, economic, and social objectives, which includes a five-point roadmap, um, which for those yeah. of you who've been following Myanmar for some time is often the way that they frame their um, kind of sham and circuitous approaches to civilian governance. Um, but um, that articulates a series of reforms, restoring law and order, you know, social development, implementing a peace process, and then holding elections. Um, and this is, I think, indicates to most people that elections are very unlikely to occur any time in the near future. Um, they did something almost identical in 2004, articulating a roadmap to democracy, and that didn't really start until 2010 um, when, when there were elections, um, and there weren't really meaningful ones until 2015. But um, this is kind of an indication to, I think, a lot of folks that um, elections are unlikely this year and that there's kind of a long road ahead. Uh, the interesting element of this will be to see how the the junta's kind of enablers in the international community, including Thailand, China, and India in particular, how they will respond in part because they were pushing the SAC very hard to undertake these elections as a potential off-ramp to the horrifying violence that is um, that resulted from the coup and um, you know all the atrocities that the SAC has committed. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the uh, the international support they have because it's still quite significant and like especially in terms of uh, propping up their military force through the use of air power they they can they don't have domestic uh, like fighter jet manufacturing right so uh, can you talk a little bit about that like I think they received a couple more planes very recently right yeah from um, the Chinese um, yeah they're kind of an interesting dynamic whereby you have a, a an entire country of 53-ish million people um, fighting against a tiny military institution of about 500,000 or fewer, uh, if you include their families and all the medics. Um, and that tiny institution is being supported by just a handful of countries, um, as I said, kind of China, Russia, uh, to a certain degree, India and Thailand, um, and a few others. Um and the vast majority of the world is kind of opposes this military takeover and the subsequent dictatorship and all the horrendous atrocities that they've committed. Um, and so there's quite a lot of international actors who are providing kind of um, uh, rhetorical support to the resistance and some, you know, support to civil society and humanitarian assistance and others. But, you know, on balance, the support that the Chinese, Indians, Russians in particular um, have provided in terms of material assistance to the SAC, um, as well as the diplomatic assistance that the Chinese provide at the Security Council in particular, but also the ties provide um, within ASEAN is, you know, far outweighs the rhetorical and small material assistance that the West and, um, you know, other supporters of the resistance movement have provided. 
Um, so yes, to answer your question, the you know the Chinese and Indians continue to provide material military assistance to the SAC, um, and you know my question is kind of what is their theory of change here, and how will um, supporting the SAC militarily lead to anything like stabilization? It's just kind of perplexing to me when both countries are very. Um, interested in 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 supporting uh, a level of functional stability, so they can undertake their economic and geopolitical objectives, um, many of which go through Myanmar. Um, I just don't really understand how they see kind of a military victory by the SAC as a pathway to stabilization when you have an entire nation that has risen up against uh, um, the this dictatorship and has wholly rejected it and demonstrated that they're willing to make. The, these incredible sacrifices to um, to ensure that this coup does not succeed. Yeah, it, it is. It's very perplexing because, like, it's not in in any sort of conventional sense like a consolidated regime, and, and nor does it show any chance of being one. Right? Like, it, it doesn't even have territorial control over a large swathes of the country that it claims. Yeah, exactly. And you you're even hearing this. I mean, uh, there's been quite a bit of research, contested research that that shows the the junta has less than 50% control. But even today, or um, day before yesterday, you heard from men online, the, the junta leader, um, that he's now admitting that they um, only have 60% control, which is a pretty sanguine analysis of what they control. Um, it's probably much smaller than that. But, you know, them demonstrating that they do not have um, control over 40% of the country is a pretty staggering proposition and kind of indication to their allies that, um, you know, they just don't have the capacity to administer a country that's unwilling to be pacified. And um, so, and, and of, you know, on top of that, it, there's very little, I, I just don't see a pathway in which they will capture more territory. Um, I mean, they have, right. you know, constrained resources. Um, they have, I think they had 22 entrants into the Defense Service Academy last year. I mean, there's just, when they when there's casualties <laughs> really? on the front lines, yeah. you just there's not a lot of replacement happening. Um, they're not able to get spare parts for their Russian-made helicopters. You know, there's just major material constraints that the SAC's military is facing, and it's just hard to imagine that they will ever regain much more than you know what they say is sixty percent uh, territorial control. Yeah, it's it's very. And then if we look at the PDFs by comparison, um, I got banned from Twitter last week for uh, posting a picture of them. But uh, I, their their equipment compared to even a year ago is vastly improved. Like uh, I don't know if you saw the one group of guys with their Accuracy International rifle, but I have no idea where that came from. But it, it's very impressive that they have one. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of um, honestly the resilience of this movement is is partly a testament to the ingenuity and innovation. Um, I mean, we saw it in the beginning, in the nonviolent action demonstrating mm -hmm. or kind of deploying tactics that we've never seen before that have, you know, been lessons to other international nonviolent movements around the world, just really creative fundraising tactics, as you and I have discussed in the past. But yeah, now it's the, the military ingenuity. I mean, essentially creating um, facilities for... Uh, retrofitting drones for aerial attacks. Um, one of the military's helicopters was taken down this morning. I um, I haven't oh, cool. I don't know exactly 
what weapons were used in that. But, you yeah. know, it's just kind of a level of innovation given that these, you know, the PDFs and most of the arrows have, have very little access to very few um, kind of inter international, um, you know, arms markets. So yeah. the, the fact that they're able to sustain themselves at all and maintain this, you know, 40%, which is probably much more, um, of the territory is is kind of an incredible testament to their innovation and ingenuity. Yeah, it's I can, there's a couple obviously of, of several PDF fighters who I keep in touch with, and like they they've spoken to me about like first they 3D printed guns, which we've mm -hmm. spoken about extensively, but also tourniquets, night vision goggles, even uh, prosthesis like like um, limbs, people who have lost legs right to, wow. to landmines and things. So like. It's amazing that they've set up all these things which normally require like a massive interaction with the state and with an international system. And they've done it using, in this case, the internet and a $300 printer they got on AliExpress or something. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's extremely sort of inspirational in that sense. But also very sad, like I want to talk a little bit about the... The SAC seems to have, it's not fair to say they've pivoted to war crimes because it's been kind of integral to what they've done from the outset. But they seem to have given up on trying to make like targeted strikes against like military formations and, and just pivoted to dropping bombs on civilians. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about a couple of those? Like maybe we could talk about the, the Kachin mm -hmm. um, music cultural festival that they bombed or, or one of the other examples of that. Yeah, there's definitely been a shift from um, a strategy of essentially augmenting um, or providing air support to uh, kind of exposed frontline light infantry uh, to a tactic of targeted airstrikes against civilian targets and against um, armed organization headquarters, which had um, under previous um, negotiations been deemed like off limits, but um, it seems as if there is nothing off limits now. They yeah. bombed um, the Chin National Front's headquarters, which is right on the India-Chin border um, on the western uh, part of Myanmar. Um, and there's pretty reliable accounts that there were um, there were bombs that landed in Indian territory. Um, I mean, as you referenced, they there was a bombing in um, Chin State on a on a festival, killing at least sixty civilians. They've done something similar on um, uh, ethnic armed organization uh, headquarters in the southeast and Karen territories, including the Arakan Army's facilities in those areas. So there has been a shift in tactics to um, targeting headquarters, facilities in that sense, and as you said, kind of civilian targets to, I don't know, you know, this is just the modus operandi of an institution that is devoid of humanity and um, so alienated from society that they, you know, they're, they're willing to go to any ends to kind of protect themselves and their control of power. I think particularly now that they've seen that the, the public is against them and um, probably quite concerned that if they are unsuccessful in this military endeavor, that they'll be kind of strung up, you know? So it's, um, yeah, I think it's kind of a sign of desperation and, a, as you mentioned, kind of a tactical shift. Me. Focus.
Gorgeous Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Maybe we should explain the the sort of four-cut strategy, which has been a long-term strategy even before the coup of the military and, and what that means and how that sort of provides, I guess, I don't know, like a moral framework. Maybe that's the wrong way. But, you know, this, it's not like they started doing this shit in February 1st, 2021, right? Like, this is what this is how they do stuff. Yeah. I mean, this is an institution that's been at war with its own people for 70 years. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the there is an underlying philosophy of the Myanmar military, the Sittat, that that they essentially are the protectors of national sovereignty and to a certain degree are protectors of the Bomar ethnic group and Bomar Buddhism in particular. And yeah. um, this is a deeply entrenched philosophy within the um, military establishment. And um, it's been... I, to a certain degree, a fairly compelling narrative for retention and institutional solidarity, uh, which is why in some part, I mean, it's one of the reasons, there are a number, why this, the SAC and the, the SITDAT memoir military is, has been resilient to um, collapse despite, you know, being extremely incompetent and um, very isolated um, and virtually never having won a war despite um, being at war for 70 years and um, having structural and military advantages. Um, and so this is kind of underlying the 
justification and the moral philosophy of this institution that is morally um, corrupted. But as you said, their um, tactical strategy is essentially one of social isolation, division, um, and ensuring as much human suffering as possible so as to um, pacify a population into submission. And so essentially the strategy is to kind of cut communications and food supply and um, uh, connections between communities and these sorts of things, which is um, for, for a very long time, the military strategy has been one of divide and conquer in which they've um, attempted to exacerbate divisions between ethnic and religious minority communities to ensure that they would not face a united front. And so the incredible challenge and opportunity of the current resistance movement is one in which the Myanmar military is no longer at the table in conversations with one another, um, and they are trying to build cohesion with one another. And frankly, this is where there is unbelievable progress that I don't think gets enough attention and appreciation. There's meaningful changes in behavior in terms of the Bamar majority ethnic community's posture towards ethnic and religious minorities and you know, communication and coordination across um, institutions that had historically been at odds and happy to go more into that. But um, yeah, the strategy yeah. of divide and conquer is really front and center. Yeah. And ironically, by pushing that so hard that they've, they've done the complete opposite, which is forced people to form like a popular front against them. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Cause I find it really fascinating how like even how like EAOs and PDFs are kind of vaguely underneath a unified command at this point. And so, yeah, let's talk about how those barriers which existed for so long are sort of gradually breaking down now. Yeah. Sort of rapidly, I guess. One of the ways in which there's been a meaningful shift has been just kind of the individual experiences of the military's atrocities. I mean, um, I think in your previous episode with uh, Ko he had indicated that uh, uh, you know, public perception of Rohingya has shifted somewhat, although it's kind of questionable yeah. whether it's a durable shift and whether it's meaningful and all that. But um, he had attributed that shift in part to the fact that the Bamar majority Buddhist population is now experiencing, frankly, some of the forms of atrocity that the Rohingya had experienced, you know, in the 70s and the 90s and then in 2016-17 um, when things escalated to to genocide. So I think this is one of the shifts is that the in the Burmese heartland, in the area where the military recruits most of its soldiers, um, they are undertaking the most, arguably the most um, extreme atrocities, burning villages to the ground, um, you know, just horrendous stuff that like I don't even want to say on the air, but just, um, you know, just an incredible campaign of terror. Um, in part because the the people's defense forces and the resistance forces are are extremely strong there and only strengthening in response to these atrocities. So I think that's one of the dynamics is that there's um, there's been a shift in perception because of um, because of the the hunter's behavior. Another is that frankly, there's just a massive political shift at play. I mean, you have yeah. you know February first, the National League led, National League for Democracy led government is deposed. And they don't necessarily have arms or an experience of, of military combat, whereas the ethnic armed organizations have been fighting for 70 years against the central government, including 
the National League for Democracy-led government. And so there is a shift in power at that moment um, that you know shifts power from the Bamar Center to ethnic minority communities in a, in a particular way. So um, that kind of opened space for greater humility and greater dialogue and um, you know, willingness to make concessions to ethnic and religious minority communities. Um, and that is, there's actually been tremendous progress there. So there's the, the National Unity Consultative Council, which is, you know, probably the most important dialogue platform, but one, one that is very focused on big picture governance challenges, um, and long-term kind of national dialogue processes. But, um, there's been some good progress there, but frankly, the most progress has been made in, um, military and governance coordination platforms. So this includes the C3C, which is essentially a command and control platform that's between the national unity government and ethnic armed organization leadership, um, where they're coordinating military strategy and, and tactics. So that, and there's been considerable trust building through those sorts of operations. And similarly, there's been trust building in, you know, basic things like coordinating humanitarian assistance or um, local administration or policing, these sorts of things um, where there's, um, you know, there's a problem that needs to be solved in the near term and we can come together to solve it collab collaboratively and in that process sort of build understanding and trust with one another. So um, there's been really meaningful differences I've seen in terms of cohesion across traditional lines of intercommunal division um, obviously a long way to go, but this is a lot yeah. of what, of what we're working on at the U S Institute of peace and, um, that the U S government is supporting is trying to support the resistance capacity to chart a viable pathway to stabilization. And a lot of that relies upon building cohesion and trust among resistance groups. Yeah. Everyone I spoke to nearly, I, not everyone I spoke to was Bamar. Some people were Karen, um, and, some of them were some of the people we'd spoken to like remotely were Rohingya. Um, all of them said that what has to come out of this is like a federalized democracy. Do you think that that's, that's likely? And what does that look like in the country that's been at war with itself for most of this last century? Yeah. I mean, clearly this is a, a question that needs to be answered by the Myanmar people. Yeah. Um, and I think that, National Unity Consultative Council is a good platform for having this discussion, but there is a number of prerequisites for, for having that discussion is, and one of them is kind of new norms of, of uh, dialogue based on trust and mutual um, respect. But yeah, I think that um, the only viable pathway to stability is, you know, is one that results in a federal democratic system in which subnational federal units have a degree of autonomy um, and in which there is a baseline of equality. Um, there is rule of law, independent judiciary, um, you know, just the basic fundamentals that ensure protections of minority populations. Um, you know, another challenge being that even, you know, within states like Kachin state where, you know, the Kachin ethnic community is a ethnic minority at the national level, yeah. but there are also sub minorities that, you know, like the Shawnee population. Yeah. And, and there's concerns that, you know, there may, um, there needs to be protections for the minorities within the minority state. So, yeah. you know, all of these things need to be sort of worked out. And this is of course like a, 
maybe a decade-long national dialogue process that will ultimately culminate in a new federal governance structure, a new security structure that, you know, maybe doesn't have a federal, you know, a union level <laughs> military with the level of autonomy or political involvement that, uh, you know, has plagued this country for so long. But this is really like the key to long-term peace and stability in the country. And frankly, like it, it felt a long way off under the NLD administration. I mean, they, they, they were making a lot of progress in a lot of ways, but, you know, building a just and an equitable governance structure in which ethnic and religious minorities had a voice and didn't feel oppressed by the dominant Bamar Buddhist population. Um, frankly, it was, it was quite a ways off. And this, you know, as horrible as the coup has been, it is definitely a shock to the system that may open up new pathways for dialogue, um, new opportunities for trust building, and, you know, the opportunity to you know, think about a new model of governance that is, you know, more just, more equitable, more inclusive. Yeah, it's definitely brought in a whole generation of younger people who like aren't sort of who didn't come through the institutions that created the old regime and just came at this as like I'm 17 and I'm fucking angry yeah. and like I'm gonna make this better, sort of uh however I can. And yeah, they they're really I mean, obviously very inspirational and uh and fascinating to talk to. I wonder, like, how do you see the end to this conflict? Because we're still a long way from, like, either side having a definitive military victory, right? Certainly all these big cities are still more or less controlled by the junta, and, and there's, there's not an immediate way that I can foresee them not being that way. So if I could ask you to, like, speculate a little bit or look at the way things are going, how do we get out of the situation where the junta's bombing schools and music concerts? and right. Um, hmm. it's, yeah, this is honestly, like, I think everyone is kind of lost, um, in our attempts to make predictions of where this is going. Um, honestly, I don't know that there is a path to a military victory for either side here. Um, I mean, it, it seems pretty unlikely that you'll see PDFs marching on Nipidaw and, capturing the Ministry of Defense yeah. anytime soon. Um, but equally unlikely that the SAC will consolidate, you know, yeah. control of the Maybe. country. I mean, that's just, ne that's just not going to happen. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, uh, <laughs> a lot of our work is thinking through the best possible out outcomes and increasing the problem, doing the work to try to increase the probability of those outcomes. And I think um, yeah. the, um, this is where it's just like, I have, questions for a lot of the international actors that are supporting the SAC, because I, I just don't know of any possible pathway to peace and stabilization that goes through a stronger SAC. It just seems unfathomable. Um, but, you know, there are pathways to stabilization that go through a stronger resistance movement that either yields some radical transformation of the SAC's composition and then some sort of dialogue process um, or, you know, just a very, very extended, um, conflict in which, you know, the resistance holds territory, um, in some parts of the country, the SAC controls some other areas, um, over an extended period, the ethnic armed organizations contain kind of, um, act more and more autonomously. And you have areas in, you know, Kachin and Wa Kokong on the Chinese border, Rakhine state that just kind of gain, 
a bit more autonomy and sort of act more independently of one another. So like this sort of fragmentation process. And honestly, if, if there is an election, you know, a, a sham election by the SAC, it seems to increase the probability of this fragmentation scenario. Um, you know, it, it increases the probability that the SAC just maintains its presence in the, in the urban areas and then Rakhine State, Kachin State, Wa State, these kind of become more yeah. autonomous regions, Chin State, um, and they start to operate as semi-independent states. So honestly, that's that's part of why I feel like support to the SAC, not only is it SAC for the elections, I should say, not only does it almost definitely increase violence because, you know, the elections are a target, but also it yeah, increases yeah. the probability of national fragmentation. Um, and it doesn't do anything to increase the probability of stability. So I just don't, I don't really see that, that being a, a pathway to any form of, of stability or ending the, the SAC's bombings of schools. Yeah, I, I think it gives them this weird talking point that like the Russian sham elections in the Donbass, like, uh, like because we saw like i think it was a mobier pdf like um i don't know if you saw this but they did a drive-by and shot some people who were mm -hmm. polling for doing some kind of election stuff and obviously that gives them this kind of oh look our election workers are being attacked what terrible people the pdfs are kind of but you you know if, if you've spent more than 10 minutes your entire life reading about myanmar then you'll realize that that's a false claim mm -hmm. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER okay I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. 
It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. The, the international community just doesn't seem to care to a large degree about atrocities in Myanmar, about the revolution in Myanmar, about the coup in Myanmar. Certainly doesn't care in the same way that it cares about what's happening in Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't care with man pads and tanks and guns and training and all the things that could bring this war to an end much more quickly. Do you think that that will change or is this going to be... Burmese people liberating Burmese people because the world doesn't care about them mm-hmm. or doesn't care in a material fashion. Yeah, I Should think there's like, concerned. yeah, I think there's um, sort of like two dynamics at play here. One is yeah. that, yeah, people care a lot less than Ukraine or Taiwan or other geopolitical yeah. interests. They see this to a certain level as a domestic issue that doesn't have regional implications something that we're very focused on demonstrating is totally untrue. Um, And the other thing is that people don't know what to do. And like, I mean, even um, the U.S. Congress just passed the Burma Act, which is a piece of legislation that essentially signals congressional interest in Burma and more to be done um, alongside appropriations of resources to support it. Um, The challenge now is figuring out what is the best use of resources and I think that um, countries like Japan and um, honestly some EU states, you know, ASEAN states, it's more they are very uncomfortable with the engaging with revolutionary actors. And there's just not a lot of certainty as to how to help because there's like, OK, military assistance um, to the NUG. It's like there's a lot of concern that, you know, you know, significant expansion of arms access in the countries. You know, you have this mass proliferation of weapons. You have, you know, concerns about post-conflict warlordism or weapons yeah. and resources getting in the hands of narco-traffickers. Um, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And so there's not an adequate, given what the first point, that this is a, re- a kind of peripheral regional matter in the eyes of some um it, it yields a very low risk tolerance and uncertainty as to what to do. And so this kind of has resulted in a couple of things. One being that the buck is just passed to multilateral institutions like ASEAN. I mean, yeah. I think China has done a very effective job of ensuring nothing happens in the international realm um, by yeah. pushing it to ASEAN, which it knows is incapable of doing anything meaningful. Um, and so it's just relegated to multilateral platforms where nothing will happen. You always have a veto from um, Thailand, Cambodia, or Russia and China at the NS at the Security Council. Um, and so, you know, it's these combinations of factors that really challenge this thing. And even within the U.S. government, there's like a very robust interagency debate about exactly what is the best form of assistance, what is the most ethical way of engaging, and um, what are risks associated with different forms of assistance to the resistance movement. Um, so I think that uncertainty plays a lot into it. And so um, a lot of what I, I think there's a lot of value that could be added if um, the resistance movement can 
come together essentially around uh, a common set of requests from the international community, um, essentially saying, this is what we need um, to be effective. And, you know, you, based on your risk tolerance, help us as you can, but we're demonstrating to you that we have, we're unified in these ways. Um, we have these needs and, um, you know, help us however you um, feel is most appropriate given your risk tolerance. So I don't know. It's incredibly complicated. I think the um, having China, India, Bangladesh, Thailand, and Laos as your neighbors also makes this just incredibly challenging. You can't access the country in the way that you can um, for Ukraine. Um, so just logistically, yeah. it's incredibly challenging. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it does seem still that, yeah, like you said, like it, it, like in Ukraine, we also have deeply problematic groups who we are who we are arming. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's ironic that their concern is spreading the pro preventing the proliferation in arms when what they've done is is helped like a giant leap forward in in I don't know artisanal homemade weapons technology mm -hmm. that like we're probably only seeing the very tip of in like our reporting like I'm sure there's more stuff that, that we'll see as time goes on. And mm -hmm. um, Billy, I wonder what can people do? People often ask like if where they can donate, how they can help, right? Because obviously it is extremely difficult to see little kids getting shot in schools and, and, and want to do something. And I wonder what you would suggest for people who are looking to help. Mm -hmm. We've both spoken to people who are collecting money through click to donate, which is one thing people can do. But um, did you want to explain that? Actually explain how people can and can participate in click to donate. Cause I think that's cool. Yeah, I mean, there's been a number of really fascinating fundraising models. Um, yeah, the click to donate model is essentially the resistance leveraging what it has um, a comparative advantage in, which is huge numbers of people on their side. And essentially, um, the resistance cre creates web pages or YouTube content or anything and, you know, just engages the advertisements on those pages, which increases the value of those, that ad space, and then they can kind of generate re revenue that way. Um, the National Unity Government has also done some really fascinating stuff, issuing bonds, uh, uh, conducting a lottery, um, selling off, you know, SAC military properties. Yeah. <laughs> I think they just yeah. sold uh, Min Online's house in Yangon for a considerable yeah. amount. Um, so it's kind of an, an incredible... Uh, fundraising model and uh, requiring tremendous innovation. They've also created a, a um, financial technology called NUGPay and a digital current currency, DMMK. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of a remarkable um, innovation there. Um, in terms of what kind of a, uh, your listeners could do, I think, um, you know, I think engaging in uh some of the international kind of advocacy and awareness raising is, is really valuable. I think some of these things, like if, you know, if your congressperson uh, acknowledges demand for this, then that can increase that per the, the, the pressure that they put on the state department, DOD, national security council, um, and potentially increase the risk tolerance of the U S government. If, if there's just more pressure there. So those sorts of things, I think, um, Honestly, engaging with some of the content that's being that's being created by the resistance, learning about Myanmar, um, you know, just just following the story. I mean, it's like I don't know. You've probably experienced this doing your reporting, but it's just like the most unbelievable 
stories of human resilience and just like, I don't know, it's, it's such like an honor to be nearby these people who are just risking so much for such a, a, for such an honorable cause that they truly believe in. It's just like the quintessential example of integrity and, um, yeah, goodness. Yeah, it's amazing. It's stuff you couldn't make up and like it, it, it's stories you can sell as fiction almost. Like, yeah. They, yeah, their integrity, like even their like um, one thing I find absolutely amazing is like you said, perspectives on ethnic groups have changed on so many things that people, their willingness to be like, I've examined my stance on this and it was the wrong stance and I'm changing my stance on this. It's like, like we spoke to so many young people who were like, yeah, I was fairly misogynist, uh, like February 1st, 2021. And since then, like I fought alongside women. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've seen them do things that I didn't, I'd been told that they weren't capable of and I've changed. I was wrong. And like, I, we need to not be a misogynist country going forward. Yeah. No, there like, was a, I was, you may, maybe, you know, this group, but I was engaging with, uh, an uh, armed organization that was, it's led by kind of an activist, former activist, um, and he was kind of saying that they've essentially tried to eliminate all of the sort of misogyny in their in their training protocols, like even just using terms like man up or something it's like wiped it from their approach because it's like that's a misogynistic <laughs> kind of, you know, approach to thinking about strength and power. And so it's like the, what you're saying is I, I'm, I'm feeling the same, hearing the same things, It's which is incredibly powerful given particularly given the pressures and what they're all going through just having the wherewithal to kind of pick their head ups and think about you know be reflective of themselves like imagine in the american political discourse people actually <laughs> changing their minds for once it's remarkable yeah yeah no it genuinely is and it's, it's refreshing in that sense to see people like wanting the right thing and, and not letting tiny differences like blow them into several thousand different pieces, right? Like broadly agreeing on one thing. Yeah, exactly. And that, that. that's kind of the remarkable, I mean, the National Unity Consultative Council, for example, you know, it's had its challenges um, as a dialogue platform, but it's still going. And that is like, people are still yes. coming to the table. And frankly, it's remarkable because repeatedly in quote unquote peace processes in Myanmar's history, they've collapsed because, you know, someone said something and, you know, another party left the table um, and didn't return. So the fact that these dialogues are continuing on is an incredible testament to people's willingness to kind of open up and be more humble and kind of consider the other's opinion and question their own, which is, you know, a lesson we could all learn. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Billy, where can people, like, where can people find you online and, and where can they find more good information about Myanmar? Um, I am, you know, if you search Billy Ford at uh, USIP.org, you can find the stuff I've written recently. And then I'm on Twitter at B-I-L-L-E-E, -E, the number four, the letter D. Um, yeah. And good sources of information. I mean, there's great um, investigative work by Myanmar Witness, um, yeah. which is just an incredible group of researchers. Um there's been a couple of good reports recently by Global Witness and, and Earth Rights related to sanctions that just came out. Um, um, USIP, you can check out some of our writing. Uh, my colleagues Jason Tower and Priscilla Klopp just published something related to how the conflict is, has regional consequences that could be of interest. Um, 
And um, there's, I don't know, there's innumerable great um, Myanmar think tanks. The Chin Human Rights Organization has done some incredible research and reporting about um, military atrocities in Chin State. Um, we could go on and on. But um, yeah, if you, I don't know, check out my Twitter. I've, I tend to repost stuff that I find fascinating and there's there's a lot out there. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. It's good to catch up. Yeah, thanks for having me, James. It's been great. No worries. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.